Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a great Memorial Day weekend this weekend. My name is Ryan. If we have not met yet, I would love to meet you, uh, whether you're here in the auditorium or out in the cafe. I would love to have that opportunity. And I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get the great privilege of working with our adult ministries at Grace. And I love being a part of Grace Church, man. Isn't it fun that we get to do this together and have loved being a part of, of Grace for the last seven or eight years and this is actually my home church even before I was on staff. And it's just a privilege to be here. And I love the ministries that we get to do and what we get to be a part of. And I've loved this series we've been in since Easter called Before After. If you've been around, you kind of know how this works. Now, if you're here for the first time, here's what we've been doing. We, we said, let's take a handful of weeks and really look at the people that originally interacted with Jesus, his disciples, a few of his brothers, some of the folks that were around during the time that Jesus was alive and said, what if we saw kind of the impact of the people that knew Jesus before he died, was buried and rose from the grave, and the impact of that event, his resurrection, that it had on those folks after. So we said, let's look at their before-after stories. And we've been walking that through. Pastor Jeff's been leading us over the last handful of weeks here, looking at the stories of James and Jude, Paul and Peter. And what we're going to do today is we're going to wrap up this series with one more story, which is, I think is absolutely fascinating. And we're going to look at the story of the disciple Thomas. And he has a small but very significant role to play in this, in this overall story. He's got an amazing before and after story. And we're going to be able to dig into that in a significant way. So excited about that. One of the themes we've seen as we've looked at these stories is that the resurrection had such an amazing impact on the people that witnessed it, that their lives were never the same. Uh, the, the trajectory of how they spent their time and energy would be solidified after they interacted with Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And that is going to be true of Thomas, although his journey, as we're going to see in a second here, has been, is a little different. He's actually known as the doubting disciple. He's a guy that did not lock into Jesus right away. In fact, he at one point, we're going to see, refused to believe in Jesus even after he was raised from the dead. So let's dig into it. And if you have a Bible with you, you're going to want to be in that today. We're in John chapter 11. So go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, make sure to grab one from underneath your chairs there. And it's 748, page number 748 in those Bibles. Or of course, you can have a, a use you version on your smartphone if that works for you as well. So one of the things we're going to see as we look into Thomas's story is there's not a ton of information, although it's very impactful when we start to see Thomas's story. And the apostle John is the only one that's actually going to develop it. So Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. It's one of the 12 that Jesus called to himself. And uh, we want to be able to look at his heart and mind and get an idea of who this guy was as we see his before-after story. So in John 11, here's a little bit of what's going on when we're first introduced to Thomas. Jesus is deep into his ministry now, and he's a friend named Lazarus who's gotten very sick. And Lazarus is literally on his deathbed. His sisters come to Jesus and they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you need to come and, and be with Lazarus. He's out of town. He's in another city, kind of far away. And Jesus is contemplating that decision. It's complicated, though, because for Jesus to go back and be with Lazarus means that he would have to go back into a very dangerous situation. The last time Jesus was in this area of Israel, he was almost stoned to death. He was almost killed. 
And so his disciples know that. He knows that. The decision is not that simple for him to simply go back and be with his buddy on his deathbed. They're going back into a very dangerous situation. Let me show you what I mean. We're in 11, chapter 11, verse 6. We kind of pick up the story where it lands. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. This is the area uh, that, that Lazarus was in and where danger would be found for them. Listen to the disciples' response. They say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back. They acknowledge the danger that they would be going back into. They recognize that. Jump down to 14 verse, uh, verses 14 through 16. And we're gonna in- be introduced to Thomas here. And we're gonna really be able to see some observations about who he is. Verse 14, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. A couple days have passed, we lost Lazarus. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus concludes, but let, let us go to him. I wanna go back into this dangerous situation. He's kind of drawn a conclusion. He's landed with it. Watch what happens. Verse 16, says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, both of those words, those names, Thomas, Didymus, they're in two different languages that both mean the same thing. Thomas was a twin, kind of random trivia. Thomas was a twin. We don't know anything if he had a brother or a sister or the rest of the story about his twinness, but we just know that he is a twin. So they wanted us to be aware of that. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, quote, let us also go that we may die with him. That we may die with him. First time we're introduced to this guy, right? He's listed with the rest of the disciples. That's literally all the information we're given in the other accounts. Out of nowhere, Thomas shows up and here's what's happening. He, like the other disciples, are gonna look at the situation. He's gonna survey the situation that we're gonna go back into this dangerous situation where Lazarus is, where Jesus was nearly stoned last time. And we get to see a little bit into Thomas's heart and mind how he's gonna approach and survey the situation. He's gonna look at it and he's gonna see that with very realistic lenses. Thomas, when he sees this danger, he doesn't look at it with rose-colored glasses and say, well, well, certainly God will protect us. We're gonna go with Jesus, we're gonna be safe. He would have seen Jesus do miraculous things. He would have known that Jesus had power available to him. Thomas doesn't draw any of those conclusions. If we would have asked Thomas that day, I'm pretty sure he would have said, I am certain that if we go back to Judea, we are all gonna die. That's what's gonna happen. He's a very logical guy, maybe even pessimistic. It's pretty black and white. If they almost stone Jesus here, uh, if we go back, guess what's gonna happen? Not much has changed. They're gonna go ahead and stone him and we're probably gonna die too. Thomas is a realist. He's a pessimist. He's a logical, practical guy. You guys know anybody like that? That's Thomas. He's looking at it and he's saying, "Uh, okay, we're going to die. Now that makes this even more significant because even though he views this pessimistically, that we will go and most certainly face death if we go back to this area, this is the same guy who kind of out of nowhere, right? Thomas is not one of the lead disciples, right? We're usually going to hear from guys like Peter or John that tend to be at kind of the top of the rank list of the most vocal oftentimes, or maybe James. Thomas comes out of nowhere, and he's the one setting the pace for the devotion to Jesus for the rest of the disciples. He looks and says, even though I believe we're going to go die, even though I'm positive that that's the outcome of this decision, 
I say, if it comes down to us leaving and being with Jesus, going to face our death, or having to live life without Jesus, if it comes down to that decision, I'm in, I say we go with Jesus. It's a guy that is extremely loyal, extremely dedicated to the person of Christ. If you were reading through this chapter in chapter 11 as you read through the gospel, you might scan through this and miss some of the heartbeat that Thomas has here. But as we look into it, we see a guy who's pessimistic, realistic, logical, practical. Somehow, he, in spite of all that, has become extremely dedicated to the person of Jesus. He's overcome that pessimism and found hope in him, found a love for Jesus. And he's committed himself to the person of Christ. And at the end of the day, he's going to be where Jesus is. Cool stuff. Beautiful observations as we look into Thomas's heart and mind. Let me take you to one of the other passages where we hear a little bit more about Thomas. And we're going to land on our central story for the day. John chapter 13. We are nearing the end of Jesus's life and ministry. Let me kind of summarize it for you. Actually, we'll start in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse one. What's happened is Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the reality he's gonna die. He's like, I'm, I, I'm trying to explain to you guys that I have to, he'll call himself the son of man oftentimes. I need to go die. I'm gonna be buried, I'll raise from the dead. And that information just would not sink in for the disciples. It wouldn't make sense to us either whoever thinks somebody's gonna rise from the dead, right? That just doesn't happen. So they, they would hear that information over and over, but it wouldn't connect for them. So he's in another situation where he's preparing his disciples for that reality. Chapter 14, he's talking to them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to, there to prepare a place for you? He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Here again, we get to meet Thomas. Only a couple lines from this guy, but we get some more insight into his heart. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I think in Thomas's heart, I don't know this, I can't prove it, but I think in Thomas's heart, there's desperation here. He's saying, Lord, if you're gonna leave us, I need you to tell me how to get there because whether you want me to come or not, I will find you. He's like that guy, right? He's gonna hunt you down. You can't get rid of him no matter what. He's clinging to Jesus. He wants to be where he is. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about a trip that, uh, that Lori and I took when, when we kind of took our first trip without the kids. Have you guys ever done this? If you have small children, if you've had them in the past, this is how this works. We were really anxious about leaving our kids for the first time, you know, because they're little. I got four kids and they're all small. And I remember <clears throat> when we were kind of preparing this, we, we would talk to them for months about mom and dad are going to go. We're going to go away for a couple days and we're going to be back. You know, and I'd watch them really not connect with the information. They're like, you're leaving? Like forever? You know, just wouldn't connect with them. And we're, we're talking it through like, we will come back. We do love you. It's okay. Never leave. That's like the only thing they would ever say. 
right? And so the day finally came, we prepared them, we knew that like the moment that we actually like left them there with mom and dad and kind of went and did our thing, that that moment was going to be an important moment. Lori was super nervous about the whole thing, right? So we began to tell them, okay, guys, we love you. We're giving kisses. They're getting teary-eyed. You know, they're clinging to mom. Like, like the first one clings on and grabs onto mom like a leech, right? They just suck onto her. And then here come the rest of the other three, right? And they're on Lori like, Never leave, mom. We love you. I'm ripping the kids off. I'm like, I had her first, right? I need, Daddy needs some quality time, right? And uh, I'm like, we're doing this. She's like, I don't know, honey. Should we leave them? I'm like, we're leaving now. Let's go. That whole thing, it's, that's what Jesus is, ha- what's happening to Thomas here? Thomas is looking at Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, never leave. I don't want to ever be away from you. I don't want to ever be apart from you. You're my guy. He's so connected to him. In fact, I, I would go as far as to say that Thomas's worst nightmare was to be away from Jesus. To be away from the rabbi and the teacher that he loved. We don't know exactly what Thomas believed about Jesus at this time. You know, we don't know if you ask Thomas, Thomas, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God or that he's God himself? We don't know if that would have connected fully with Thomas. But what we do know is, boy, he loved him. And he was in. And he was going anywhere that Jesus was going to go. That's who Thomas was. And we pick up to our final story in John chapter 20 fantastic story. If you're reading the Gospel of John, this is the pinnacle of the story. Thomas, in his interaction, his after interaction with Jesus is really the high point of John's Gospel. Jesus has died. He has been buried. He has risen from the grave. He's appeared to a few people. That's kind of the context and the setting that's played out. Let me talk you through chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Let's stop there for a second. You have to begin to get your head around where this is. The disciples have left everything. They left their jobs. They left family. They they left their commitments, and they've tied all of their hopes, their ambitions, and their loyalty to the person of Jesus. In the last handful of days, all of that came undone. They lost their best friend. They lost their hope for the future. Everything seemed in vain. It was all lost. They're disillusioned. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? They cling together as a team, as a band. They're all locked in this room where they would have spent time with Jesus. I wonder as they were gathered together if they would have looked around and said, remember when Jesus was with us and he told us about And they maybe even recounted memories. You ever lost somebody and hung out with family and recounted stories about them? That's what we do, isn't it? Probably something like that is happening. There's another element that plays in, though, because they're afraid. They've locked the doors. They've locked themselves into this room. The script says because of the Jewish leaders. They just witnessed their master be arrested and taken away and crucified. And they maybe would have recalled some things that Jesus said to them that said, he said, hey, no servants above their master, if they treat me like this, how are they gonna treat you? 
Right? You're no better than me. If they treated me with death, what are you going to get? So in their mind, they're thinking, if they could crucify Jesus, what are they going to do to us? We're dead, disillusioned, lost, scared and afraid, banded together, grieving. The disciples are hanging out in this room. Doors locked. And then I still don't even know what to do with this fully. I'm just being honest. John just tells us nonchalantly that even though the doors are locked and they're in this room, that Jesus came and appeared among them. Well, that's interesting. Basically, Jesus, risen from the dead, pops up out of nowhere and appears in the room. That is fantastic. I would love if that happened. I'm pretty sure I would need to visit the restroom if that happened to me. I'd be like, didn't you die? This is crazy. You're in the room. You're alive. And you just walked through a wall. That's fantastic. So Jesus says, peace be with you. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm sure that's the absolute last thing they had at that time was peace. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. One of the things that needs to kind of need to explain about this is Jesus is in his resurrected body. We don't fully know what that means, what a resurrected body is. We know that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that even though we die and are buried in this life, that one day when Jesus returns, we're going to have resurrected bodies. And they're going to be in some kind of quality similar to the kind of quality of body that Jesus had. And we know that when Jesus showed up, his, his disciples and other people that witnessed him didn't readily recognize him. They didn't know for sure right away that it was Jesus. In some way, his body was different. Somehow, he had to convince them, look, see the holes in my hands, the, the gap in my side? It's me. I'm alive. It's me, Jesus. He does that. He explains that to them. Can you imagine the joy that they must have had? That's what John records. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Hope restored. A friend returned. Oh, man, this is amazing. Jesus is alive from the dead. Now, jump down to 24. This is so significant. We pick Thomas back up. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. Where was he? Where was he? We know what happened to Judas. Judas sold Jesus out. He would go and commit suicide. He's kind of off the team. That was his response to his failure in following Jesus. The rest of the 10 are together in this room. Where's Thomas? What's he doing? Where is he? We don't know for sure. But if we look at the evidence given about Thomas, I think we can make some educated guesses. What I would propose to you is that Thomas most likely was racked with grief. Racked with grief. Because maybe even more so than some of the other disciples, Jesus' level of loyalty Thomas's level of loyalty to the person of Jesus was off the charts. He loved him. He was following him no matter what. He was shattered by the death of Jesus. You guys ever lost somebody that you love like crazy? You ever been able, been kind of uh, immobilized by that? Where you couldn't be with anyone? You just couldn't muster the strength to be with people. Ever been that broken by pain? 
that some of you have, and, and you know and you can imagine what maybe Thomas was going through that day. Was he racked with grief, broken, couldn't even get out of bed? We don't know. But something like that had to be swirling in his heart. His worst nightmare had played out. He's living it. I wonder if he was racked with grief. I wonder if he was overwhelmed by remorse. Because remember, this is the guy that said, Jesus, I will die with you. I'm in. I'm a good soldier. I will go, to you, go with you wherever you go. And if it means my death, I'm in. He made that proclamation. I think he meant it from the heart. And when the moment came for him to prove his loyalty to Jesus, that night when the guards showed up with spears and clubs and they actually came to arrest Jesus, when the rubber hit the road, Thomas, like all of the rest of the disciples, Matthew 26 tells us, deserted and fled. Thomas would have broken integrity, broken loyalty to his friend and brother and teacher in Jesus. And he, he wasn't there. He was a coward in the face of danger. The very thing that he longed to do was be loyal to Jesus. Was he racked with grief? Was he overwhelmed by remorse? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but... That all has to be swirling in the heart and the mind of Thomas. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, you imagine their excitement. You know how it is when you've experienced something, you're trying to transfer that experience to someone who wasn't with you. He says, they have, we have seen the Lord. Here's Thomas's response. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I have no idea how this actually played out. I kind of envision it intervention style, Jesus, or Thomas sitting in the middle of the room, 10 of his best friends, the other disciples, telling him, seriously, Thomas, Jesus is alive. It's true. It's, we all saw it. I can't even imagine how obstinate Thomas must have been. He's a first century Jew. He knows how the Jewish law works, which says if there's two or three witnesses, that that testimony is credible. What we have here is Thomas's 10 best friends, his buddies that he spent the last three years with. He knows them. He's spent his life with them. He's cried with them and laughed with them and bled with them. They're all there with him saying, Thomas, it's real. Jesus is alive. And Thomas would look and say, I will not believe it. This word, put, put my finger where the nails were. It's actually, the Greek word is shove. Unless I shove my finger through the holes and shove my hand in his side, I will not believe. You know what was going on in his heart that day? I think Thomas was so shattered by this that he couldn't even risk it being true. And when the opportunity for hope 
the opportunity to ante back up and believe in Jesus again, when, it, when that opportunity arose, he, he was like, I can't risk it again. I can't show up and I can't believe and it's just too much for me. I love Jesus' heart here, guys. I want you to see this. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. It's as though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. Same experience. He says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Oh man, you guys. Jesus could have approached this in a lot of different ways. He could have looked at Thomas and said, you don't believe, I'm done with you. It's over. He could have looked at Thomas and said, you deserted me, you failed me, I'm through with you. Jesus looks at this disciple who he loves, who he spent the last three years with. He would have remembered and known the intensity of Thomas's devotion when, when he proclaimed, "All go to the death with you, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? We don't know how he said this, but I believe that Jesus, with passion and gentleness, said, come on, Thomas. Come on. Go ahead. This is what you need? You need to put your finger in it? Go ahead. Is that, what it, is that what it's going to take for you to believe? I love you, Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Can you feel his passion for this disciple? That Jesus would have gentleness for him. Mercy for him. At a time when Thomas is at his worst. He was broken. He was racked with remorse. He had failed Jesus. And now he was wrestling in his faith in Jesus. And you have to see where Thomas lands. This is his before-after conclusion. When Jesus approaches him with mercy and love and compassion, 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Mm, This is the highest statement in the whole Bible given directly to Jesus, where Jesus himself is called God by a disciple. For a first century Jew who had a view of God that there's one God, we don't see him, for them to attribute that claim and profess that a human being, a person, indeed is God, was man, it was huge, it was magnificent, it was profound for them to be able to do that. For Thomas to look at Jesus and say, you are my God, was massive. When faced with the opportunity, Thomas, Annie's back in, he lands in the conclusion that Jesus is his Lord and his God. Historical record, if we play out the rest of Thomas's story, that profession of faith did not stop at words. 
Thomas would go on to spread the gospel to India. He would die as a martyr, killed by a spear. He lived my Lord and my God. He was different. He was changed. His after story sent him in a trajectory that lived out this grand profession of faith. Jesus restored him, helped him to move forward. And I want you to see what happened because Jesus does take it a step further. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, the NIV causes this to be a statement. We'll look at it here in a second. He says, because you have seen me have, or you have believed. I like how the ESV translates this. It says it this way. Have you believed because you have seen me? Remember, he showed him his hands and he showed him his side and, and he would look at Thomas and say, Thomas, did you really have to see? Didn't, didn't you know me by now? Thomas would have felt shame in that. There's forgiveness, but there's shame. That, that it, that's what it took for Thomas to believe. Have you believed because you have seen me? Listen to the rest of the statement where we are included in the story. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was alluding to the reality that millions of people would have the opportunity to look back at the resurrection and to put their faith in Jesus simply and clearly by faith. That only a unique group of people would have the opportunity to actually see Jesus raised from the dead. Here's what Jesus wants us to know. Say it this way, the power of the resurrection is not only for those who see it, but any who believe it. Guys, here's our temptation. Temptation is to look back at James and Peter and Paul and Jude and Thomas and say, you know, man, if I got to to poke my finger through Jesus' hands, well, yeah, I would have radical faith too. If I was Paul and I was knocked off a horse and Jesus showed up to me supernaturally, well, yeah, I'd have crazy faith too. I'd give my life to Jesus too. Guys, here's the thing. The fact that those people had an interaction to see Jesus resurrected, that's actually not what changed them. Not fundamentally. What fundamentally changed them is the fact that the resurrection happened. The fact that it's true. And they enacted the power of the resurrection in their own lives when they put their faith in that reality. Because it's not seeing the resurrected Jesus that changes us. It's believing in him. It's having faith in him. That's why Paul would tell us that the power of the gospel is the power of salvation. When, when we today can have the same kind of power available to us that James did or Jude did, Peter, Paul, or Thomas. The power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that changed these people's lives 
is the same power that you and I have when we put our faith in the risen Christ. He's as alive today as he was 2,000 years ago. He's as real today as he was then. And what Jesus would have us do is he would have us drawn back in just like he did with Thomas and he would long to see us drawn to a conclusion, a before-after conclusion, where Jesus would look to us and say, what do you believe about me? Because I need you to hear this. The question that Jesus is asking us is not, what do you do with church? Did you grow up in church? That's a great question. He's just not asking it. He's not asking, is your, your grandfather a preacher? Or, or did you go to communion? He's not asking, do you generally believe in God? He's not even asking if you think he's a great teacher and a neat guy. Those are all interesting questions. They're just not what's being asked right now. Jesus is drawing us into a pinpointed conversation where he's saying, have you made the life-altering personal decision that says that I am your Lord and your God? Have you done the resurrection math? Pastor Jeff's been talking us through this math over the last handful of weeks. Here's what he said. Jesus rose from the dead He is God. If he is God, his love is true. If his love is true, his teachings are right and good. If his teachings are right and good, then he has defined for us not only the path to heaven, but a way to live that both pleases him and benefits us. Thomas did that math. Jesus would look to us and say, have you personally owned that? As I'm going to have the band come out, I, I want to walk us through this conversation. It's critical. Maybe you're hearing these stories for the first time and facing this question for the first time. You're saying, I, I don't know exactly where I am with Jesus today. I don't know what I believe about him. That's okay. That's awesome. Glad you're here. You might be even in a place where you've been hurt and you might be saying, I don't know if I can take that step of faith because I've been so shattered by life. Guys, what I want you to know is that no matter where you are today, Jesus is longing to receive you back just like he did Thomas. Thomas that he has mercy and grace for you. He loves you. He longs to forgive our sins. He longs to draw us into relationship to save us, the Bible says. As if you've never made that decision, I long for you to make that today. Would you look and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've failed you. I've done things I'm not proud of. I recognize 
Jesus, that you paid for my sin. That's what your death was all about. And I accept that forgiveness and I want to relinquish the control of my life to you. So much so that your words will define my life and your direction will become my direction. I want to I be in. As you've never made that decision before, I would encourage you to make that today. Just simply pray to Jesus Tell him where you are. Tell him you're sorry. Say, I want you to be my God. Guys, there's many of us in this room that, that would line up with Thomas. We would look and say, yeah, Jesus is my God. Yeah, I'm in. I would encourage you today maybe to have an honest moment Would you allow God to speak into maybe where your profession of faith doesn't align with how it's actually being lived out? Right? Our, Our mouths will quickly say that Jesus is our Lord and our God. But is it showing up in life, in priorities, in decisions? because it sure did for these original disciples. It sure has in the history of the church, of the people that said yes to Jesus, when they said their Lord, my God, my Lord, that meant something to them. Would you allow God to speak into that lack of alignment and allow God to draw you in to where he'd have you to be today. Guys, I want to close us out here with just some prayer time. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. Simply want you to ask God this question. Would you just say, God, help me see where I really am with Jesus. What do I really believe? if my priorities and my decisions were measured would that align with my profession of faith? Would you have an honest moment today with Jesus? Just in the quiet today, allow God to speak to us. Father, I want to land where Thomas landed. I don't want to just say it with my mouth, Lord. I want to live it with my life. I want to be able to say, my Lord and my God. 
to you. Lord, would you work in our hearts this morning? Draw us to faith in you. What a radical faith. Because you are alive today, Jesus. You long to be our God and you long to receive us into greater faith. Lord, thanks for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your gentleness with our hearts. Lord, speak to us this morning. Work with us. Draw us to yourself. Draw us to that before-after conclusion that we long to have.